Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and this week I am bringing in Tom Myers to talk about bringing anatomy trains to the larger healthcare community and using it to connect different providers with a common language. Now, for those of you who don't know Tom, and I imagine that is a very small percentage of you out there, he is the founder and cartographer of Anatomy Trains. His work has literally changed our industry and understanding of not only how the body is put together, but how it functions from a myofascial perspective. Needless to say, this is a great honor to talk to Tom about his work. So when preparing for this conversation, I can say that I was certainly a bit nervous and wasn't really sure what to expect. But what I found is that Tom is not only smart, articulate, embodied, but he is also a truly kind human being. When I talked to him, I immediately felt that he was open and welcoming. Now, we covered a lot of ground from his work facilitating conversations between different healthcare providers to the way he helped his daughter develop kinetic intelligence before she could walk. It was, as I hoped it would be, an engaging and inspiring conversation. I hope you feel the same way. I give you Tom Myers. All right, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you stopping by. Oh, Haley, it's a pleasure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm sure many of my listeners know who you are and know about your work. Uh, but for those of my listeners who are not familiar with you or Anatomy Trains, can you give us a truncated or a shortened version uh, of the theory and the practice so people can get some context for your work? Sure. The main thing that it rests on is this idea of the fascial fabric that uh, unites all the body organs and um skin and nerves and everything. But um, I focused on what were the connections through the body and specifically on the longitudinal connections through the body. So essentially, I strung the muscles together like strings of sausages and saw how they were working together. So there's one that runs up the front of the body, one up the back, one up the sides, one that spirals around it. These are all helpful in movement. And we have for the last 400 years been considering individual muscles and what an individual muscle does. I think it's time to start putting things back together, um, moving towards the whole and um, see what we can learn from that. Yeah. So I, I know one of your passions now is to take this knowledge and use it to connect to the larger healthcare community and on a bigger scale. Can you tell us how this is taking shape? Uh, yeah, I can. I was... Uh, really expecting that maybe I would sell a couple thousand books when I first wrote my book. And, and uh, I'm happy to say that it's in the hundreds of thousands now. And uh, not only that, but it's been taken up by a variety of professions. Um, so not just people who are doing rolfing, not just people who are doing massage, but physiotherapists, personal trainers, yoga teachers. Um, I'm about to give a bunch of um, lectures for rehabilitation doctors in Asia. And I've been invited to a, a um, convention of dentists next year. So um, all of this has just been amazing for me um, to get a picture of all the different professions. But it's also been the opportunity in our classes to bring these folks together and make them speak together. Because essentially, physiotherapists say, oh, these yoga teachers, they don't know what they're doing. And the chiropractors say that somebody else doesn't know what they're doing. And it's really good to get people, because everybody's well-intentioned uh, in this. We're all in this to try to help heal people. And uh, so to get people into one room and make them talk to each other, 
I think, is building something that is bigger than all of them. And that will take shape over the next, I would say, 50 years. I don't expect to see the end of it in, in my professional lifetime. Um, but we're bringing all these professions together in what I call, I don't know what, what it will be called, I call it spatial medicine. We, we do a lot with material medicine, we do a lot with drugs and surgery, um, that's the predominant medicine now, is, is how do we change the matter in the body? And then there are a whole bunch of people in the form of psychotherapists and psychiatrists who really work with your perception of time, not to get stuck in the past and not to get stuck in the future. But osteopaths, physical educators, personal trainers, uh, all the people in those groups that I was naming all work with how the body works in space. How do we educate ourselves to work in space? How do we deal with the environment? Are we balanced? Are we coordinated? Um, are we aligned? Are we integrated in, in our bodies? That's an area that life used to take care of. And now we're in an age where life doesn't take care of it anymore. Our kids are housebound. They're not moving enough. They're stuck on their screens. And we kind of have to build the vocabulary of movement and make sure that all our children are, are getting that full vocabulary. Sorry, that was a bit long. But it, that's, that's my passion is to see how all these professions come together to have a new attitude towards the body because we're in, in a period of history we've never been in before. So when you do these classes or these presentations, is it uh, kind of a lecture style or is it, it feels like it's more collaborative when I hear you talk about it? What is, what is the format? Oh, it's very much collaborative. I have about 25 faculty now who teach the basic courses all over the place. I teach, uh, I tend to, to be the rainmaker now, so I'm giving more speeches um, where it's um, more of a lecture format, more of giving people, and then we follow up with the, the courses that we have um, in, in future for the, those who want to get the practical application. Um, I'm kind of a Johnny OneNote um, in terms of my practice. I've been practicing the work of Ida Rolf, deep tissue um, work outlined in a series so that it, that it works progressively through the body. But I don't expect everybody to take that up. Um, so we work a lot with personal trainers. When, so when I'm in workshops, it's a very collaborative thing. I, when I'm working with personal training trainers, it's often out on the floor and, and uh, working with the machines or working with the tools that they have. Um, and the courses that I give where I'm teaching my method, it's, it looks very much like a deep massage course. There are tables, and we're working at tables and benches um, to, to get across that deep work. So... Any, any format that I can find, we do what we do a lot of collaborative stuff with movement, and we do uh, a lot of teaching of manual therapy technique. Hmm. I'm, hope, I'm hoping to get more involved with physical educators uh, in schools, uh, because I think that's a, a place where we could really have a deep effect on the next generation of children. And schools, you mean like like public schools and, and private schools, actual, not massage schools or any vocational schools, you mean the actual primary schools and such? I mean the actual primary schools. I, we, we do a lot of work with vocational schools and massage schools and osteopathic schools now. Um, but the, uh, I'd like to get into the schools because so much of what is a physical skill is being taken out of school now. There you music learning music is a physical skill there isn't the budget for music now and art is a physical skill and there isn't the budget for art now and um there is money for sports but only if you're good 
if you're not good at sports, you're going to get sidelined and money is money, attention, time is not going to come your way. Even recess is being cut back in school now. We're teaching so much to the tests um, that I think recess is a very, very important part of school. You get to run around. Uh, also, we, we label bunches of kids as ADD or HDHD, ADHD, when in fact they're being asked to sit still in a chair all day. Well, to tell a child to sit still in a chair all day is an insane request. So I think that a lot of these kids are having a sane response to an insane request and just getting up and moving around. I was working with a child the other day um, who has a, a processing problem and um, we would do something and then he had to run out of the room and run back. And I, I realized it's, if you're a teacher, you would say, oh, he's being rude or he's just being uh, non-attentive. That was how his attention system worked. He had to, we were, he was playing my guitar. We were just having fun. Um, but he would play it. He was very, very interested in it, but he would play it, run out of the room, run back in and then play it again. And then he'd have to run back out. That's how his processing system worked. And we need to, that's partially neurological, but partially physical as well. And if we knew more about movement, we'd be able to help these kids set up an environment in school in which physical intelligence went along with intellectual intelligence and emotional intelligence. You know, we're, we know a lot about intellectual intelligence. We're learning more about emotional intelligence. We, all, we know almost nothing about physical intelligence, and a lot of it's being wasted. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, and maybe you already have taken a few steps here, so it's a, a little clearer for you, but do you have a vision of how that entrance into the primary school, how that, how that works? Is it, is it a classroom format? What, what, is the, what is the vision for you? Well, a lot of experiments are being made now with bringing yoga into, and, and of course, a lot of these happen in the private schools or the Waldorf schools or uh, particular school districts that have an interest in this. Um, so a lot of experiments are being made, and I think the format will become clearer. I'm not a, I'm not in primary schools every day. Um, a lot of them have different schedules, so I'm not sure I want to make a prescription for this. Um, but uh, if you if you think of a kinesthetically aware child coming out of school, um, they would be a lot more aware of other people's feelings. They would be more tuned into their own physical feelings. Uh, what 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 we call a hunch or an intuition is actually beginning as a physical feeling, and um, if we're more t- tuned into those physical feelings, we're better tuned into our hunches. We're better tuned into our intuitions. We're better tuned into other people's feelings. And um, all of these are an advantage in surviving in the world of business or the, being an entrepreneur or whatever it is that you're doing in life. Those are, those are good things to have. And it's, those things aren't too hard to get. It's just that they've just been moved out of school almost wholesale, uh, certainly American schools particularly, um, in the last 20 years as we've focused more and more on academics and less and less on things physical. I would want my child to be coming out of high school with more knowledge of their body than they have of the principal exports of China or something. You, know, it's a, you, <laughs> you may or may not use trigonometry. I, I, I learned trigonometry in school. I, I haven't been called upon to use it since very often. Um, and I, I'm sure that there are jobs in which it is called upon to be used, but I learned almost nothing about my body in school and I've had to learn a great deal about it since. Um, I, I'd say another note on that is that uh, 
the people that we're teaching, the yoga teachers, the massage therapists, and the personal trainers, and the physiotherapists, they are getting questions that a doctor would have gotten 20 years ago. Oh, I've got this lump in my breast. Oh, my periods are irregular. Oh, I'm constipated. Um, and these questions are coming to these folks who are not equipped to answer those questions. Um, and one of two things happens that the person doesn't get an answer or they get a bad answer. Um, and so we're trying to uh, bring up the educational level of these practitioners because doctors aren't even aren't on the front lines of healthcare anymore. You don't see a doctor until you're a couple of people back. And it used to be nurses, but nurses are now getting so specialized that they're hard to get to as well. So the answer, the, the, the solution that people have had now is to ask their yoga teacher about um, this thing or that thing that, that doesn't quite rise to the clinical. And that's the reality of our, of our society. So we really ought to be educating these practitioners so that they can handle these questions uh, responsibly. Yeah. And to that effect, I'm curious, which healthcare professions uh, seem to have the most interest and participation in the, the lecture series or the classes that you run? Well, we started because that's where I started with massage therapists um, and the book, um, the, the popularity of the book, The Anatomy Trains book, has really pulled a lot of, of people in. So I'd have to say that that's happening in ways, Haley. We, uh, we had massage therapists, and now we're getting a bunch of... Then we had a bunch of yoga people, and now we're getting uh, a lot of personal trainers and physiotherapists. And what's just beginning to happen is rehabilitation doctors, especially in Asia. So I'd, I'd have to say in different parts of the globe, it's different groups. I work with a group of chiropractors in Norway and physiotherapists in Poland and osteopaths in England. It's, it's uh, kind of interesting both to put together different cultures as well as different professions. Yeah. Is that, is that a challenging aspect? I'm curious if there's like a, a like a, a, a aspect of this that is, that is really challenging. Is it the language barrier? Is there, what's, oh, what's no, something no. that's come up here for you? Cultural barriers. People in England uh, have an attitude to the body that the body is something used to hold up the time, um, you know, hold up the paper, uh, and and they don't generally um, consider the body as a. Whereas uh, right now I'm in California, and Californians are much more tuned into this kind of thing. So it depends on that. In China, it was very hard to get people down to their underwear. That's not something that they do. But if you're going to do manual therapy, you really need to do that. And they expect to be shown something in class and then just go off and do it. And I, I, I don't believe in teaching that way. you got to practice it. You have to have it practiced on you and practice it on somebody else. So I had to overcome that cultural barrier. Um, and so there are different cultural barriers in Japan or uh, different parts of Europe. Uh, Do you have a, an international audience that you find is the easiest to translate your work? Um, well, uh, this work has been quite popular in Germany and uh, we're quite popular in Japan. But as I, I just cut back and say that anatomy trains is just a map. I do teach deep tissue work, but the anatomy trains particularly is a map. And the map has been taken up by, as I say, personal trainers, yoga. I don't try to tell those people how to do their work. I just say, okay, here's a map. Look at how it applies to yoga. Here's a map. Look at how it applies to personal training. When somebody's doing something this way and doing something that way, are they doing it the same way? Here's how to look at their back to see whether they're doing it the same way on both sides. And here's, if, if one part isn't working, here's how you can facilitate that. Um, well, I'm not trying to tell them how to do their work. 
I'm just saying this, the, the math that you learn of the biceps is a single muscle and it's an elbow flexor and a supinator and some kind of weak diagonal shoulder flexor. That's only part of the story of the biceps. The biceps is also part of a myofascial continuity that goes from your thumb deep into ribs three, four, and five, and really has to do with how you control the angle of the hand. And so the, the biceps is part of something bigger than just itself. So the, by isolating the muscles and just considering a single muscle, we really miss out on strategies, but uh, those strategies could be for physios, those strategies could be for a personal trainer. Hmm. And for you, what has been the most surprising thing for you to discover when working with these other professions, these the, the rehab specialists, the physiotherapists, um, et cetera? That everybody is using different words for the same thing and the same word for different things. And that, that that's why I like getting people in the room and having them to discuss it. There's, there's the thing of breaking down the professional barriers that are very common, but uh, also it's to build a vocabulary. Um, as I say, for, in order for us to educate the next generation of kids, we need a common vocabulary of movement. And we don't have a common vocabulary of movement. Osteopaths use different terms from chiropractors, use different terms from personal trainers. And um, so I, I don't mean this quite the way I say it, but I'm kind of knocking heads together when, um, uh, when we're in these classes to have them speak to each other and get the language down so that we're using a stretch. Stretch is a great example. People use the word stretch for all kinds of things. And we don't have a common definition of stretch, even though it's common to almost every method that you can think of. Um, people are using it in different ways. And what does that mean in the fascial system? What does that mean in the muscular system? What is stretch meaning in the nervous system? It's, um, <laughs> it's kind of a mess at the moment, and it needs to be cleared up. So do you feel, and maybe this is a little bit preemptory or a little too early to say, but do you feel like this could be your next book, this vocabulary of movement? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, when I get the time to write another book, which um, I'm trying to carve out, it will be about um, how do we stay embodied in the electronic age? You and I are talking over many, many miles, um, but we're looking at each other. And this whole new world um, into which our children are being born is, um, well, I, I think it's as big a change as the industrial revolution or the agricultural revolution, you know, reaching back in history. Um, and it's going to change these, these phones, the computer that we're talking over are extensions of our own nervous system out into the world. And that's going to change how our nervous system works. And it's certainly going to change how we educate. Um, I can barely remember my own cell phone number and I don't even know what my daughter's cell phone number is because she's on speed dial. I haven't dialed. I had to dial her number and I really had to look it up because it had been years since I dialed her number. And she's always had the same number, but I don't use it anymore. So this, this is going to be, it's going to be absolutely strange to think about talking to somebody without seeing them for our children. It's going to be very hard for our children to tell the difference between a virtual experience and an actual experience. That's not true for us now. Virtual reality is at its very primitive stages. Uh, this whole electronic revolution is at its very early stages. And But one thing I can see is if we're going to be properly embodied, we're going to have to actually get children moving. Um, whatever virtual experiences they're able to have, that's not going to provide the stimulus. And we know that it affects the brain um, to get the stimulus of movement and 
I don't think we can guarantee that our kids are getting proper stimulus now. They um, estimated that they, they went back to this tribe. I've forgotten the name. It was near the Omo River in Ethiopia, but it was as close to a Stone Age tribe as they could get um, these days. And they counted, and these, these guys were taking 15,000 steps a day. Well, an active person takes 6,000 steps a day, maybe, maybe up to 10. We're not getting anything like the exercise we used to get um, in paleo times. Uh, so you can talk about paleo food, um, but, but d movement is a diet too. You could say that movement is a form of food, and uh, we're, getting, we're on a junk food diet these days. Yeah, and it's not, and it's going this the one direction, which is down. I think you're, it's pretty attuned. This idea that as technology increases, it changes our activity level and it changes the way we orient and operate in the world. And currently, the technology is getting designed to make things more and more convenient or more and more sedentary. Is the way of saying it. You know, the things getting done well, for us. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take quite such a dismal view that you're taking. Uh, I think there are forces that are coming back the other way. The there's I. Um, staying with young people here in San Diego and the surfers and the skateboarders. And there are absolutely people increasing the amount of physical activity they're doing um, and using using the environment parkour. If I had a kid right now, I'd be training in parkour. I think it's uh, that kind of uh, dealing with the urban environment in, a, in such a creative and artistic way is uh, just wonderful uh, thing that's happening. So I, I really hope that that, continues and moves up i i don't think it's it's going all one way the forces that are really pushing us are advertising we're always getting the message that we're not good enough as we are um and i i don't want to go against megan's law but ever since megan's law um and that that awful kidnapping of a child that happened we keep we want to keep our children safe and we keep our children safe by hemming them in in buildings the Children don't spend much time outside anymore. Um, and uh, I, again, I would like to see more of that, um, obviously, to happen in a safe way. But uh, one kidnapping that happens in a, in a blue moon shouldn't really affect a whole generation of kids any more than the number of people who die in automobile accidents every year stop us from using automobiles. Um, we, we accept that social cost. And I think we've accepted a social cost to our children uh, that is much higher than the threat um, that was presented by this situation. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about is a cultural change, which is, it has a great deal of inertia to it as we all participate. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I'm curious if you have a favorite quote when you're working with these healthcare providers with regards to uh, the work and, and how to get them talking to each other and on the same page and with the same language. I think that, that I, I'm going to go back to something that I said earlier, but just make it a pithy little quote, which is movement is food and we're on a junk food diet. So uh, that, that we have to start considering movement as a necessary component of life and uh, making sure that uh, our kids, well, everybody, our, our clients, our, our children, have a good vocabulary of movement in order to negotiate the world. Mm -hmm. And it, it sounds like you know the idea of getting kids to move more, that also start, starts with parents and parenting. Are there ways in which this conversation or that idea 
can translate to the parents so that we can start this cultural shift? Oh, that's a really good question, Haley, because we went back as far as school. Um, and yes, I think physical education in school really needs to be reinvigorated and, and uh, rethought out for the electronic age. But you're absolutely right. The first movement education that kids get is from their parents. In that first 18 months, you can't talk them out of diapers. You can't talk them into their clothes. Um, explaining everything isn't going to do much. So in that first year or year and a half, uh, it's largely a kinesthetic conversation. So we right now we're having a vocal conversation and uh, hopefully I speak and then you speak and then I speak and then you speak. It's called stepped. It's, uh, it, it's one step, one person steps and then the other person steps. But in a kinesthetic conversation, you can both be learning at once. So I was teaching my daughter, this was many years ago, how to use a hammer. Um, I could tell her how to use a hammer. I could use a hammer myself and show her, or I could put the hammer in her hand, bring it back behind her shoulder and bring it down somewhere near the nail. Which way do you think she's going to learn the fastest? She's going to learn the fastest by actually doing it. Um, because that sets up a kinesthetic pattern in her brain. She can repeat that kinesthetic pattern earlier, uh, easier. Whereas to have her see it and then translate it into her own body is going to take a longer time. So, I took her to dance class, she, ballet class, she would stand at the bar, she would look at the teacher, she would try to make herself look at the teacher, she'd look in the mirror to see if she looked like the teacher. It was very visual and, and the teacher was calling out things, so it was very visual and auditory. When I went to Bali and watched them teaching dance in Bali, the ama, the, the dance teacher, would drape herself over the students so that her arms were over the students' arms and her front was against the students' back and teach them that way. Now, it's a one-to-one -one teaching. I understand it's, it's uh, more labor-intensive, but the children learn very, very fast that way and very, very thoroughly that way because any mistake either way was communicated within a 30th of a second. Uh, if you're watching visually, it's more like a second, and if you're listening auditorially, it's thousands of seconds. It's really a very slow way to learn. Yeah, I, I have this exercise that I borrowed from my wife, actually, where when I'm leading massage therapists through their first stages of teaching, learning Swedish and learning how to touch um, in a kind of a compassionate and a, and a good quality of touch, I have them lead their partners around the room and the partner's eyes are closed. And just giving the, 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 the physical touch to allow them to, to maneuver through space and maneuver safely, and then I have them do it again, and have them, they only can use their words. And when they, they think that it's going to be somewhat similar, and it's a totally different experience, because using your words is almost like a binary code, whereas the, the, the touch is so much more informative. There's a lot more information coming through uh, the physicality than, than through our language. Yeah. I mean and coming both ways. I mean, that's the, the difference. We, we borrow a lot of our ethical, we massage therapists borrow a lot of our ethical um, structure from psychotherapists. But there's this fundamental difference in that we touch people. And as soon as you touch somebody, information is not only flowing from uh, you to them, it's flowing from them to you. Did I put that right? But anyway, you, you are telling your client a lot in the way that you're touching them, as well as learning from them in in how you're touching them. So that that way of approaching things 
is, as you say, it's multidimensional. It is not as simple as what psychotherapists do. I don't, I'm not trying to denigrate the work of psychotherapists. I'm just saying that as soon as you add touch in there, you've added a personal dimension, um, which is a really interesting thing for a massage therapist and anybody who touches, is that you have to learn to get yourself out of the way uh, in order to give a good session. And uh, a psychotherapist can sit across the table from you or sit around the corner from where the couch that you're lying on and pre pretend that they are a tabula rasa. But you can't pretend that you are uh, not involved when, as soon as you touch somebody because they're learning about you and you're learning about them. <laughs> on, on that note, I'm a terrible client when I come in and somebody starts touching me. If they're not touching me from the right place, I get very stroppy and say, can you relax your shoulders or can you get down in your feet? Um, because I don't want to be worked on by somebody who is not grounded, not connected, and I need that connection if I'm going to be touched in a professional way. So watch out if I'm, and I'm a terrible, I'm a very vocal, uh, terrible client. Well, I think what you're talking about is the information coming through, right? It's both, it is going both ways and you're receiving it as well, right? You're, you're learning about it. And, and, uh, I think, You've probably earned the right, and I think we all have earned the right to be a little picky when it comes to how we are touched, right? I mean, it's a it's a fairly personal thing. So, the exercise the exercise that you're doing with your students is just a really good exercise because um, it has to do with how you engender trust. Um, when you're leading somebody who's blindfolded around the room, they they don't trust because they can't see, and so then you're you're using you're stuck with that kinesthetic sense. This is what I was talking about about the parents in that first 18 months, how you handle a baby engenders that baby's independence, engenders that baby's ability to sense things. Um, you know, if you just always pick up the baby and put him in the car seat, um, then the, how's the baby going to learn how they're going to actually get up themselves? So if you know what I teach parents, and I, I actually don't teach the parents, I teach the midwives and the doulas, and then um, they go out and work with the parents. I'd really love, this is an affair of my heart because it's, there's no money in it, um, but to get parents educated as to how their babies are going to move, I think is a, would prevent a lot of the stuff that we see in adults. Um, if babies learn to move independently and in alignment um, in those very early days. And you can, you can do that with parents. You can get parents into how they touch and how they move with their children in about four hours of training. Two, two hours before the baby comes and two hours after the baby comes. Um, and I would love to see a program like that around so that parents were more involved in the physical movement of their children in those early months. Yeah, can you give me just a, a quick example or two of, of ways in which parents can work with their, their children in a more effective way to help them kinesthetically? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll give you two. Um, one is is with the diaper, you know, it has two straps on the side or pins on the side that you're going to have to get off. So I would touch my daughter on the side of her hip and then I would roll her to that side or away from that side and I would undo the pin on that side and then I would touch her on the other hip or roll her up and take off the pin on that side and or the strap. And Within a couple of weeks, uh, she doesn't, you know, how much is she participating in this? Well, in the first few weeks, not very much, um, but as time goes on more. But uh, what would happen is I would touch her on the side of her hip and her eyes would go right and her head would go right and she would participate in the spiral to the right and likewise to the left. So there was this feeling instead of her being done to, 
when her diaper was being changed. She was doing with. We were doing it together. And just if you keep that spirit going um, with your children, uh, they're, they're simple tricks. Like if you put a sleeve in front of, if you try to stuff a sleeve down a kid's arm, there, there are actually a couple collarbones broken every year trying to get kids' arms into the sweaters and things. But if you put the sleeve in front of the kid's hand, push the hand towards the body, they will automatically extend the arm out. And they, uh, it's, okay, it's a trick, but their arm goes down the sleeve. They have that feeling of the arm going down the sleeve. It's easier to repeat next time. And the child feels, ah, this is something I can do. This is something I can accomplish. And we, we want to have that kind of feeling going on in our kids, not, not the feeling that they're being done to all the time. Yeah, it's a more participatory. And it also feels like there's a connection there as opposed to just this blob of human flesh that is kind of like you're, you're helping kind of stay alive. It's actually there's something happening. There is information going back and forth. A tremendous amount of learning is going on in that first year of life. Um, and we, we spend almost nothing on, that first, on the education of that first year of life. Um, and I understand it's, it's more expensive to go to college, but um, we, we ought to be thinking at least of educating parents because we all grew up in nuclear families and a lot of us didn't. I was 30 when, when we had my daughter and I had no experience with children because we're so horizontally stratified in this society. You know, old people are with old people. Working people are with working people. College age people are with college people. I have to work to keep kids in my, my daughter doesn't have any kids. So I have to work to keep kids in my life. Um, I work also to keep old folks in my life uh, so that I'm not stratified horizontally in, into just working with the people who are around my age or who have the same interests as I do. That didn't used to be so. It used to have three generations of a family living in a house. And if you go to India, uh, everybody lives in a great big compound, and, and therefore you have more contact with death and with life and um, all the things that have happened, childbirth and all of that. But a lot of women are arriving at childbirthing age with no experience of childbirth. They've never seen a birth. They've never been to a birth. They've just talked to their friends who said, oh, how horrible it was or something. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really important that we sort of reintegrate ourselves vertically. Experiments are being made, and you know these things are small snowballs that will grow into bigger snowballs. I think I think the the problem will become ever more evident um, as as we have more ADD, as we have more people uh, out of contact, alienated from their bodies. You're going to have more depression. You're going to have uh, more autism, and uh, or autistic behavior, I should say, and. Um, that will make the that will unfortunately make the problem more evident and uh, make it important that we get in and make that kind of connection through parents, through um, grade school teachers, and and the early part of life, so that we don't get into all these problems in the later part of life. I mean, how many people are are having hip replacements and knee replacements these days? Does that really mean that hips and knees weren't designed to work for 70 or 80 years? I don't believe that that's true. I think hips and knees are designed to work for a lifetime, um, but that we use them improperly. We, we sit so much, we don't load uh, properly through our, our limbs, and therefore the joints give out um, before <laughs> we're ready for them to give out. Yeah. I intend to have my hips where I'm, I'm 68 now, and I... Uh, intend to keep sailing my own boat and uh, I have quite a schedule of, of moving around the planet on airplanes which involves a lot of sitting 
So I try to keep my hips in action because I have no desire to have them replaced. What's a common piece of bad advice that you hear massage therapists getting? I see a lot of, uh, it's, it's on the covers of the magazine that uh, you can uh, get around your desire for continuing education by doing an online test for, uh, you know, in 10 minutes and pay 50 bucks and you get your recertification. This is a young industry. Massage, uh, I, I, massage came into its own in my living memory. I, I know I'm old, but still, this was really the uh, late 60s and early 70s that it came out of being associated either with adult entertainment or with the blue rinse that it really was something for little old ladies um, or it was something that was connected with adult entertainment. Massage therapy as, as a real event only really emerged in the 70s. That makes us 40 or 50 years old. That's a very young industry. So the necessity for continuing education is really in there. I know I've got an extra grind because I'm in the continuing education business, but um, you don't get enough. I don't care how good your training was. I don't care if you went to Canada for 2,200 hours of training in British Columbia or whatever it is that they require up there. Um, you have to come back for that. That training is not good enough. That's true for doctors. That's true for nurses. That's true for physios. It's true. It's especially true for massage therapy because we're getting new techniques, new research, <clears throat> new ways of doing things. And um, that coming back for uh, to get yourself re-upped. Every time you're bored, go take a course. Every time you're, you're feeling like, oh, crap, I got to get up and go to work. Um, then it's time to go out and get a new course and get re-excited about your work. Yeah. I have a question that I've been asking a lot of my guests, um, and it's around failure or missing the mark. And I know that as lots of educators and lots of massage therapists like to share the moments that they really succeeded with their, their miracle cases, if you will. Um, but there's also this uh, idea. We don't want to, we don't want to avoid the, the biggest learning opportunities, which are, 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 are points of failure and areas where we could have done better. So I'm curious if you have a most favorite or a most memorable failure as a manual therapist. Well, first, yeah, I'll get there. But let, first, let me just, let me just reiterate that, that uh, what, what you said, that I think that um, you learn not so much from your miracle cases because you're not sure that it is what you did that caused the miracle. Secondly, it's their miracle. Uh, you were the midwife for that miracle. You weren't the cause of that miracle, so be careful on that one. Um, but you learn so much from your failures. It's, it's the failures that keep me awake at night and therefore drive me to new learning and drive me to try something different. Um, so I've been in practice for 44 years. I have so many failures that um, I'm going to have a hard time picking one out. Um, but the, the most challenging uh, clients that I've had are the ones with the deepest um, what would I call them, psycho-spiritual problems, where you're really looking at somebody who is going down a pathway where they're just up against a wall and they're not going to move there unless you can back them out and have them go the other way. And getting people to back up from this dead-end tunnel that they're just going, there must be cheese down this tunnel, there must be cheese down this tunnel, and they're at the dead end of the tunnel, and it's like, you got to go back and try another way, man. Um, 
and and searching for those kinds of things. I've I've had uh, clients who are way out there in terms of being multiple personality disorder. I learned a great deal from working with those people. Um, Can I ask what I, was you learned from that those experiences? We talk about multiple personality disorder quite loosely now, but it's a real thing, and uh, those people are in uh, a very very different state. Um, I had this one woman who had several characters inside herself and a couple of them could speak French and the rest of them couldn't. And on my table, when she changed from one character to another, her body odor would change from one to another, which means that her whole inner chemistry was changing. This, this just bent my notions of what a personality was and what a person was in a personality. Um, and they were the, the, the few people that I worked with in that kind of state. Um, were very, very challenging to me. And uh, I must say that uh, they, they came out successfully, but it wasn't like a two or three visit thing. It was over an extended period of time uh, in order to get the people back on, get the characters to come become co-conscious on, in, on their stage, so to speak. I don't know if you, what was the movie? Insight or something like that, where they had all these characters in the stage of some kid's brain. Um, it was a Pixar film, but, uh, Oh, inside out, inside out. That's it. And, uh, that's, uh, it's that kind of thing of how you can work through the body to get somebody straightened out in their brain processes is, is something of great interest to me and something that I failed at, um, frustratingly in the early part of my career until, uh, I got more experience and, uh, I, it's just been a, a great thing for me to work across cultures. I would, I, this isn't what you asked about failure, but I, I would highly recommend to anybody who's thinking of making this a, a, a career long investment to get out of your own culture for a little while and see another culture. If it's at all possible for you to live in another country, volunteer to, to go and work uh, in a place that's less fortunate from, from where you are. Um, there are all kinds of programs like that in disaster areas or, or in underserved areas, you will learn a great deal from working in another culture. When you come back to your own culture, you'll be able to see things in different ways and maybe avoid some of the mistakes that take so long to get there. The other thing that, um, again, it's not quite a mistake, but don't neglect yourself. Um, if, if you are a massage therapist and you're not exercising, you're not taking care of your own diet, you're not exploring your own body, you're going to burn out and you're not going to be of service to your clients after a while. So um, that, that was something I had to learn was uh, I thought I could go into this and, oh, well, I'm serving you. So don't worry about me. And I'm not going to think about me here because I'm in service to you. And that's that's a bullshit attitude that you really have to get rid of because uh, if you're not taking care of yourself, you won't be able to take care of other people when it came up for you about that, what was the thing that that let you know, hey, this is I'm not handling this correctly? Was there a specific um, event or a part of you that broke down? Um, well, no, I've had several times of breaking down. I, I um, had when I first went to London, I had great success there, and um, just was wanting to accommodate everybody who wanted to come. And I was doing 35 sessions a week and I started getting great big black circles under my eyes. I mean, this is 35 hour and a half sessions a week. So, uh, and then there's of course all the support work that goes along with that. Um, 
making phone calls and keeping your diary and making your notes and all of that. So I was just, I got completely burned out. And um, instead of continuing my practice, I jumped out and went to live in Greece for six months, which was a good, good thing. But um, it would have been a more intelligent thing to simply take care of myself, keep my practice in gear and not make such dramatic changes um, to myself, my family, the practice and the rest of it. Uh, if I'd taken care of, better care of myself, I wouldn't have done that. And um, just as I started uh, this teaching and started moving out into personal trainers and um, working with people who yoga teachers, working with people who are more in movement, they usually start out from an idea of they've been serving themselves and, oh, well, I'm really good on the gym floor. I'm going to start teaching this. Um, but they are already been in service to themselves, whereas massage therapists often start out with, uh, I know I'm generalizing, but often start out with this idea of, oh, well, I'll be doing it for other people. you got to be doing it for yourself, too. It's, I think I came to that about 55, and I'm 68 now. <laughs> um, but I take a lot better care of myself now than, than I did earlier. Hmm. And that has changed, I'm sure, both your, your personal experience, but also the quality of the experience you, you're able to give the people you work with. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I learned, I learned, I, I have made it my practice all my life to train in different things. I have trained in Tai Chi and Aikido and a couple of other martial arts, and I trained in osteopathy, and I've uh, doing work with a personal training now he's actually teaching me to box which is not something that i ever thought i would do um so i like dipping into things because then uh, running etc because uh, then when somebody comes who is doing that thing i know something about what they're doing um but that that goes for a lot of things when a dancer comes i go to see them dance when a when a musician comes i go i i say when when can i see you playing music um because that just tells me a lot about how they use themselves um and therefore how to, how to help them. Also, they're not presenting for you. I, when you, when you see someone in their element, uh, that's a totally different experience than when they're trying to show you what they do in a, in a total, in a different, uh, context. Yeah. Yeah. You're at a party and somebody says, what do you do? And I say, I'm a rolfer and everybody's kind of straightens up. <laughs> to, <laughs> makes their posture better. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, no, the real one that you were doing was the one you were doing before I mentioned that I was doing body work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you want to see people in the proper context. Yeah. Well, very good. Before we leave, I have one last question, which is, is there some, is there a behavior or a habit or something that you do that you have changed in the last five years to make your life better that, that you, can, you can point to? Yes, I will. It's not for everybody, but... Um, I started uh, four foot running and I run on the balls of my feet. I run like a deer. Um, and uh, I think the whole Nike shoe thing with heel protection, really, um, it does not serve people's knees and low back. And when I learned from Robert Schleip that uh, you can train elasticity back into the fascia, I wanted to do that. You, if you, if you think of elastic bodies are young bodies. If, if, your two-year-old falls down the stairs that they may be some tears at the bottom, but they're probably going to get up and be playing in five minutes. If grandma falls down the stairs, it's not the same thing because she's not as elastic anymore. She doesn't bounce well. Um, and as I'm getting up in years and I want to stay functional, I wanted to train more bounce, more elasticity into my body. So um, I do that via this four-footed uh, running. 
So I don't, my heels don't touch the ground during my morning run, which is about four miles from me. Um, and uh, that has really restored a lot of elasticity to my ligaments in my hips and, and low back. And I think that's really served me in good stead. So I don't know if that's for everybody. Not everybody. Uh, I didn't like running when I first started, but I, I really do now. And uh, I really like that feeling of being able to bounce and rebound. And uh, that's helped me as my body ages. Hmm. Is there any other activities where that that application or that theory can can translate as well, even if it's not necessarily running? Are there other physical activities? Oh, sure. Yeah, jumping rope um, is any any kind of bouncy thing. You know, we uh, I'm old enough, so I remember Jane Fonda and aerobics, and that's the last time that ballistic stretch was really taught. That kind of bouncy stretch because people realized it didn't loosen muscles, it tightens muscles. That's why yoga has the sustained, slow moving, because you don't want to excite that stretch reflex, the myotatic reflex, so that the muscles actually tighten up. And I do, by bouncing along the side of the road, I do have very tight calves, and I have to do calf raises and, and you know step on a step and really let my heel come down to counterbalance the tendency of those muscles to tighten up. Um, but the benefits are, are uh, worth that worth that cost definitely awesome. the other thing is uh, do, uh, the, do you have something that you really love i um if you ask me what really prepares me for body work i would say sailing that's that's my particular hobby i'm not saying that everybody should be a sailor and not everybody has access to that but but pottery painting writing poetry i don't know sailing for me involves all my senses. I'm listening, I'm watching, I'm feeling the boat, I'm sensing on my face the wind. There's just all kinds of sensory data that's coming in, and I find that that translates over to body work. So, um, you know, the idea of exercising your hands or something like that, that's pretty, that's pretty small compared to if you really are doing something that you love, I think it will translate over into your work. Hmm. Well, that sounds like where we should draw this to a close. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Haley, you asked great questions. That was, uh, that was really fun. And uh, I hope it's been useful to your listeners. It has been indeed. Very good. Well, thanks again. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the episode, please go ahead and review it on iTunes. And if you have any questions that you had wished I had asked or topics you want me to cover in the future, please visit the website at www.housethepressure.com where you can send me an email and hopefully I can include it. Until next time, be good and be well.